0: Everybody knows who, first of all, Lips is he's here. He's enjoying the nice weather. He wants to go back to Israel. Please welcome him for our final program in this series. Uh,
1: Good afternoon. I want to start off with an apology. Um, For those of you who attended the Sunday afternoon session on Haridim, I made a big mistake and I feel very bad about it and so I want to publicly declare uh, my failings as a lecturer. I said of um, the Gaon, Vilna Gaon, that he believed in Pilpul and that is incorrect and I got mixed up and this chap coming in now, Mike, he was the one who came up to me and said I know that you don't know about the Vilna Gaon. And I said to him, you might be right as he said it, but then I had to make sure he was right before I was going to make a public apology, which I don't find easy. So uh, I went to look and uh, I've got a number of e-books through Tel Aviv University, and indeed he was right. My mistake was that Pilpul existed before the Vilna Gaon, but the Vilna Gaon himself totally opposed it. So why did I have to apologize? If I'm going to take people to the Baltics, and I don't know who the Vilna Gaon is, you're not going to want to come with me, and legitimately. So my apologies, and it definitely was a mistake. Another small comment. You may know that there's some events going on in Washington at the moment with the your president and our prime minister. I've been following the events closely. I have a, a pretty much a, a principle um, of not commenting on something until I get as much information as I can. And at the moment, it's very, very partial. Uh, hopefully, by Thursday night, I will have been able to read the 50 page document, which even then is not so clear. I just want to make one point at this stage without making any comment that this is a unilateral declaration this is a declaration a one-sided declaration and in israel we've had another case like that the 2005 disengagement from gaza was a unilateral declaration by Arik sharon he didn't negotiate with the palestinians it turned out to be a bit of a disaster i'm not saying it's the same here but i'm just saying then, in terms of what we might call a treaty or an agreement or something like that, we're talking about a one-sided commentary by people who have similar identities. So we have to understand exactly what this is. It doesn't belong to the category of peace treaties or anything like that. OK, our topic is Russian-speaking uh, uh, speakers, Russian-speaking immigrants uh, to the state of Israel 1990 to 2020. A little bit about the, uh, the handout. Um, the first little one, and I'll deal with it in more detail, why most new immigrants to Israel aren't considered Jewish. This is a big question with this population. Very big issue, so we'll be going through that in more details. There's another one which caused very fairly recently, a few months ago, uh, Israelis are upset with the rabbinate, who admitted that they used DNA testing to determine whether a person is Jewish. Um, also, I don't have to tell you what that means, and, and we'll deal with that in more detail. Uh, and the third one is something about Russians and ele- elections, which I'll deal in more detail. In terms of the bibliography, I think the bibliography indicates something. On this particular topic, there is a vast amount of material. It's quite amazing how much, and what's happened as far as research is concerned with this particular population is that uh, many Russian speakers of, have, were uh, very serious researchers when they were living in the former Soviet Union, uh, and when they came to Israel, they themselves tended to have trouble with research in, in Israel itself, but their children became very, very active, and a lot of the best research is actually done by uh, Russian speakers who were either born in Israel or came at a young age, um, and they've carried on some of the serious academic discipline, which we know uh, is true with with, um, Russian-speaking people. So that's important. There's something which I particularly want to mention, and that is the YouTube. If any of you sort of just want it, it's quite a long section. Uh, it's, a, it's a few hours sitting down, but there's a very unusual YouTube um, uh, uh, series uh, called Russian Jews, and, and all the details are there, which is really the best I've ever seen. I mean, I've read a lot of literature, but this is in a very clever documentary. It gives a wonderful feeling of the background of russian jewry we hear about it the pogroms at the end of the 19th century and the russian revolution and all that but this is a quite an outstanding documentary so uh, if you like learning through visual um, means that's a good idea so what can we say about the russian jewish immigrants to israel firstly they're two very distinct and different groups the first group were those people who came to what was then Palestine, Eretz Israel, in 1905. 1905 is the start of the second Aliyah, and the, the core group of Zionists um, really come from Russian-speaking countries. The, the whole first generation, first group of, uh, of leaders, Zionist leaders, were from that part of the world, uh, there were some exceptions. Chaim um, Weizmann uh, had spent many years in, in England, and a few others, uh, Herzl himself, came from Hung- Vienna and Hungary, Hungary and Vienna. Um, so, but, but they're pretty much the exception. That generation, those groups of people, very interestingly, had, ap- had no connection at all with the group that we're talking about, who came essentially in the 1990s. And it's, you know, people would often say, oh, the Russian immigrants of the 1990s will find it easy in Israel because their lunchmen, the people who came before them, uh, will will connect. There was absolutely no connection between them. And there was an ideological reason for that. The earlier Zionists who came in the pre-state period were totally convinced that they came for ideological reasons. So, well, but it's not totally true, but that's some of their feelings. They, they came because they really wanted to come to Eretz Israel. And when I say it's not quite true, because the push factor was very powerful. But the image that they had of themselves was often, we were the ideologues. When they looked at the group coming in the 1990s, they say they don't really want to come to Israel, but, but the... Soviet Union has opened up, former Soviet Union has opened up, they're running away, and they would, and this is partly true, they would much prefer to go to the United States, to your country. But the United States and Israeli government sort of worked together to, as time went by, to make sure that... Some of them, but not all of them, changed their route and, and came to Israel. So that's really it's an, an interesting situation because you look at immigrant groups and one of the factors that helps immigration is clearly if you've got a group, a significant number of people who've settled in a country and then you have the chain migration phenomenon, which is very well known uh, in Jewish history. Um, but in this particular case, it isn't a chain migration because if they're too totally... Uh, different groups. Um, A few seconds about the background. As we know, the Russian-speaking Jews were um, very, very closely connected to the Communist Party. And uh, there's some very good reasons for it. By and large, Russian-speaking societies. By the way, I'm saying Russian-speaking because sometimes it's not only Russia. It's Belarus and Ukraine and and other areas where there are Russian speakers. So I'm speaking about, I'm using the term Russian-speaking, but it's it's bigger than Russia itself. Um, I'm using the language definition and not the geographical definition. The, um, they, it's been interesting question on why there were so many Jews in central positions. Something which people like yourselves might want to ask about the United States. Very different situations. In the case of Eastern Europe, with a relatively small middle class. There were middle class people in the cities, no doubt. But it was a relatively small class. You have a exclusive elite made up with the sars and the uh, religious authorities and some wealthy people, but also that was kind of a closed group. And then you have the large, large group of serfs or, or, or workers, regular workers. So the Jews in that situation, not unique to the area we're talking about, but pretty much a global situation, become a required subsection. And there's been a very interesting debate on having said that, there were other middle-class people, but why was the percentage of Jews so high? You look at the leadership of the early Communist Party, uh, certainly uh, 1917, the Russian Revolution, and you know it's at some t- depending on which picture you get. There are different pictures. A third of the group, sometimes it looks like almost a half a group, very high percentage, and there are a number of possibilities. One possibility is that the Jews had suffered more than other middle class groups in Russia. And so therefore were looking for change. And change, they believed, could never be as bad as what was. They were gonna find out later that that certainly wasn't the case, having experienced Stalin. But the other reason is quite unusual. And I remember uh, studying this particular issue. The fact is that many of these communist Jews sounding as if they're atheists, came from religious families. And in their earliest stage of their lives, they were Talmudic scholars. Now, the writing of communist documents requires very, very clear language. And the ability to come from Talmud and transfer those skills in a totally different environment is because you have the ability to take, as we know from Talmud, where there is a study of words and terms, um, and transfer it to be a propagandist for the Communist Party. Very, very interesting idea of how skills in one realm can change to skills in another realm. Why does this bring to mind modern Israel? Because they found that in the relatively small number of uh, Haredi, ultra-Orthodox soldiers who've gone into the army, quite honestly, they're not going to be put in a fighting unit. They're not going to be jumping up and down mountains after 20 years of, of, of study. But what they do is they put them in units where intricate studying is part of it. And because their brains are focused on you know, that's kind of a concentration, they turn out to be very, very good in particular realms, certain computer realms and things like that. So I mention it because it's kind of an interesting combination of how, from a Haredi background and then becoming an atheist, your skills remain the same. The Russian Revolution was a shock. The Jews were convinced the world is changing. But by 1919, two years after the Russian Revolution, We are already beginning to see a very clear anti-Semitic reality. And so you have this phenomenon of Jewish history, amazing. The the, the broad view of Jewish history says in a very cynical way, don't be excited when things get too good, which is somewhat against some Jewish ideas of always believe in the future, but it's a very interesting phenomenon of this awkward situation of how we might interpret success and then how sometimes you have the reaction of a wider society. This is very much a European phenomenon. You find it in many of the European countries. So from 1990s onwards, the Jewish possession gets bad. And for our purposes of the discussion that we're having here, what does that really mean? It means that survival, in an, the overwhelming majority of cases, comes give up your Judaism. It's a no-win situation. And when I've been to Eastern Europe, and I'll just give one case study, you see how deeply embedded, embedded this idea became. We were um, once in Kiev. Kiev, and I was, I was there, sent there by the... Um, Joint distribution um, crowd, and what happened there? Um, I was with. There was a combined program of American Jewish students studying in Israel and Israelis. So it was uh, Hanukkah. So we went to various houses of elderly people, and we pulled out the Hanukiah. There was an old woman there, and she. There were were also, by the way, some local um, uh, Ukrainians who were translating. Suddenly, as this old woman sees the Hanukkah coming out of the the packet and showing that what happens is that you put the Hanukkah at the window, she suddenly screamed. And she was saying, And so the Ukrainian speaker said, what, what's going on? She said, but the people will see that I'm Jewish. This is the late 1990s. So this deeply embedded fear, which comes up so much later, and for anyone who study any of those areas, you see how with some of the older generation, the fear is so deep, even after all the years. This is... Supposedly, after communism, uh, the change of regime and everything else of all those areas, it really doesn't uh, work out exactly like that. 1953 saw the Doctors' Plot. Without going to the details, kind of the high peak of anti-Semitism. Stalin dies at that time, and but even after the death of Stalin, who had clearly had plans for mass annihilation of the Jewish people. I mean, he had no problem annihilating other groups as well, but he was certainly going to the annihilation of the Jewish people uh, in 1953. So the Jews, in a strange way, disappear from history. Not in a real sense. They're no longer around. The Iron Curtain is set up. And But uh, in the 1970s and 80s, and maybe some of you people were involved, slowly but surely, the cracks of the closed society are beginning to open. And uh, brave people, it originally started, if I remember correctly, with uh, a group of women in Britain who uh, chained themselves up next to the uh, Russian embassy in in London um, and spread around the world, Jews secretly going into... Uh, the former Soviet Union uh, taking a Sidur, taking a Tanakh, taking a mezuzah, just something to somehow other uh, get contact with the refuseniks. But I think the important issue in terms of what we are discussing is to understand that there was at least a generation, in some cases two generations, where totally forgetting about your Judaism was what was required. Now, there were still secret little activities going on. When you look at the Polish story, you know that by the the 70s you have the, what's called the flying university group in, 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 in Poland where they're doing secret study. I'm not saying it's wiped out totally, but the mass, we're talking about large numbers of people, the mass story is lower any sort of commentary on being Jewish because it's just a dangerous situation. Why is this important? Because in the 1990s, when the former Soviet Union opens, there's not a great understanding of what's really happened to them. People, very few people were going there, small numbers. And when people went there, they were often being you know, watched by some KGB person behind them. Certainly when the telephones were speaking on the telephones to the Refuseniks, there would be the click on the phone, all those kind of things. But what happens is this tremendous gap of two realities. People in the 1990s, Russian-speaking Jews in the 1990s, start realizing that with the fall of the Soviet Union, and because they were well-educated, albeit with tremendous opposition from many universities to accept Jewish because it was written on the card, that was clear who they were in many cases, but they, were the, they wanted to get out. And the percentage of Jews leaving, emigrating from the former Soviet Union, it starts 1989, a bit before the 1990, 1991, when this became clearer, uh, the percentage of Jews leaving, of emigrating from those areas is extremely high. Uh, they less than 1% of the population, in some cases, the figure goes up to even 20 or 30% of people from a particular area who were leaving who were Jewish. And they're coming into the big wide world. Now, the big wide world that they wanted to come in, as I mentioned before, was the United States. You know, they'd heard a lot about America. And even with Soviet propaganda, uh, and I've read some of it, and some of it's uh, on YouTube and places, the propaganda was that terrible things happening in the United States, And uh, there's uh, racial killings going on all the time. But there had been enough contact with America to know that America's really a good place to come to. And in Israel, what they hadn't realized is that, firstly, there had been a tremendous amount of anti-Zionist propaganda. The Russians had never stopped expressing their, their deep disagreement that there's a Jewish state. Not only did they express a deep disagreement with the Jewish state, but in the 1970s we see a massive Russian military presence in Egypt. That time, uh, clearly the major enemy uh, of the state of Israel. And so, therefore, the information they had of Israel, influenced by this ongoing propaganda against the Zionist movement and Protocols of the elders of Zion and all those sort of things coming to the fore again. um, Israel was low on the agenda. What they also didn't know about the state of Israel is that Israel has some pretty tough laws and uh, concepts of who is a Jew. And to be Jewish is not to say you're Jewish. It's to prove you're Jewish. And here starts the crisis. In 1989, the um, concept of let's leave, just to give the figure, altogether there were 71,000 people who left to emigrate from the former Soviet Union. Of only 12,000 came to Israel. Very small number. This is the Jewish figure. The Jewish figure of 71,000. Only a very, very small number uh, gets to Israel. From 1990 onwards, for the more or less the 10 years, the figure is somewhere between 950,000 to a million. So you, you sometimes hear in different places. And here they begin to find that although they had chosen to go to Israel, although they had been directed in one way or the other to come to Israel rather than going to the United States, the problem that they face was absolutely unexpected by them. They come in, initially they're quite happy, open society, after some of them living in the northern parts of uh, Russia, uh, the Israeli winter seemed like the middle of summer. (laughs) And they're quite happy, things seem to be good. And then some of them want to start getting married and it becomes a little bit of a problem. Because for those of you at the session, one of my sessions when I spoke about how my wife and I got married, both from Orthodox background, both getting letters, certificates, or letters, not a certificate, from, from our Orthodox rabbis, and even then it was a pain. Well, you can imagine what, imagine what starts happening with Israeli bureaucracy, which although it's become a little bit more sensible, was totally obnoxious in the period we're talking about. The the, the bureaucrats were poorly trained, the bureaucracy was very heavy. I remember renewing a passport, you'd go stand in line at five o'clock in the morning when the office opened at nine, so you can, during that day, it was crazy, absolutely crazy, much better today. But here they are, they don't know what's going on. And then the rabbinic authorities begin to find out, and it carries on until a few months ago, where the rabbis start saying, well, I don't know, under what regulations are you coming through exactly? Because they're mixed couples. And that becomes a problem. And then there's a problem of cemeteries, which carries on today. You have a couple, someone defined as Jewish, another member of the couple, non-Jewish, and they don't allow the non-Jewish person to be buried next to the Jewish person because you have to go to another cemetery. You know the word broch? This is a broch. This This is a problem. This is a real big problem. So this is really the basis of what we're talking about. I want to take four or five realms of what happened to the people even before they had to deal with the rabbinate. Because, by the way, if you weren't doing anything public, then everything was, you know, you didn't have to do anything official, then you can kind of start living. So what do we know about the people who arrived in the 1990s? Firstly, tremendous gaps between the generations. It's true of all immigrant societies first-generation immigrants getting to a totally new country. And we must just remember how large, how, what, how massive the gap was from a communist regime, so heavily dogmatic, coming to Israel, which seemed to be total chaos. And I remember speaking to the Russians who were arriving even earlier in the 1970s just how difficult they had, the difficulties they had in trying to understand what Israel was all about. It just seemed to be something totally different. Now, if we look at political behavior in Israel, compared with political behavior in Russia, we can know why there was confusion. In political behavior in Russia, you know what the results are before the election. Political behavior in Israel, you don't know what the results even after the election. <laughs> so you're talking about some, some high level of confusion. And when the early group of uh, Russians were arriving, it took quite a long time, and the older generation found it very, very difficult. I just want to give you two little anecdotes to kind of get into the mind of what was happening to them. Even before the big wave, in the 1970s, small numbers came. I was then teaching at the Hebrew University. And Israeli students are, are mature. They, most of them are both army nice, you're kind of um, easy to be with because they had interesting experiences in life. And in the particular part of the campus where I was teaching, um, every now and again, I would say... It's a bit of a hot day. We didn't have air conditioners in the classrooms initially. Let's go and sit under a tree nearby. And Israeli students were delighted. Uh, Many of them were working night shifts, and it was so much more comfortable sleeping on the grass rather than in my class. (laughs) So there we go outside, and the Israeli students, just like Israeli students, many students, I'm sure, sort of relax on the grass, and I'm talking there. We're having a nice discussion. I had one Russian-speaking student who would arrived a little time before, he studied Hebrew very quickly, and he would only stand. So I say to him, look, everyone's sitting down, and I'm sitting down. I, I grabbed the tree, by the way, so I get to help my back. So, but he couldn't. And after about two or three classes where he actually stood like this, I said, I really, I'm trying to understand, you know? tell me, tell me what's happening you you don't like sitting on the grass should i bring a mat you know i've, I've always been creative he says no he says where well, i come from the fact that the 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 professor is sitting on the ground i, I just can't deal with it and therefore he just he, if if i if i'd stood up and he had stood up maybe that would have been okay but it was the image of me sitting relaxing with all the students and you know taking life easy, found it very, very uncomfortable. He was happy when we sat in the classroom and I was in the front and the students were behind. Everything was clear. The lack of clarity was very, very difficult. But there were other issues which one comes up, and I'm not being critical, I'm just trying to show. Cultural gaps, what we forget so easily, the culture we live in is sometimes so strange to the other Sitting in a a, um, a minibus kind of thing, 12-seat or something, um, on a drive from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv. Happened to be sitting next to a woman. Now for me, minibus analysis is the all-time best. 12 people, no one can get away from me. Great. So it's a good time to chat. How do you learn about societies? If you read newspapers, it's often distorted. The literature, the academic literature, isn't quite there yet. It's too early in the stage. So I'm speaking to this woman. It was a fascinating discussion. So I say to her, No, you know, how's life? Hebrew speaking. So she says, Not good. Not good. What's not good? Tell me... um, have you got a place to live? She says, yes, I've got a little place. I'm From Moscow, in Moscow I had a little place. Here I've got a little place. So I'm trying to do my checklist of how to be happy. Um, have you got a job? Yes, I've got a job. It's not exactly the job that I had before. By the way, the Russians found it very difficult to find the exact job definition which they had over there when they came to Israel. That's an ongoing uh, uh, crisis. Yes, I've got a job. Have you got friends? Yes, I've got friends. I'm trying to say, what's wrong? What's really wrong? You seem to have all the components for an immigrant. That seems to be okay. So I say to her eventually, I say, well, you've given me all these things. It seems to be okay. What's wrong? And she says in these words, Niet Circus. No circus in Israel. She comes from Moscow. The Moscow has a big circus. And then I got it. You see, that was the issue. She grew up in a city with circus. And then I wanted to make her feel happy. And I said to her, in Israel... Neert Bolshoi, and we haven't got a Bolshoi in Israel, we've got some good dance groups. And she said, Neert Bolshoi, and then we went through all the Neerts together, (laughs) we got off the, we were such buddies, I'm just sorry, I hadn't invited for a cup of coffee. But I'm saying this because it's this, it's this kind of assumption we make about immigrants that we really don't know that what is different, we think we know what, what they want to, but they want culture. This particular group of Russians want culture. They wanted books in Russian, they wanted theater in Russian, they wanted the television in Russia, by the way, all they've got now. They want radio in Russian, they've got it. They want newspapers and journals in Russian, which they've got a tremendous amount. Things eventually worked out. But the initial group in the first generation, the first period, was very, very problematic. The Second problem they had was a stereotype that developed in terms of the Russians. And this was very problematic. You often look at immigrants with stereotype. You often have an image. It's sometimes supported by the media. It's sometimes supported by politicians. But the image of the Russians was problematic. And one asks why. Well, this was a very large number of immigrants. In the 1990s, uh, by the end of the 1990s, approximately one out of every five Israelis was a new Russian immigrant. That's a big percentage. Ten years, your population changed by 25 percent. Not people who understand Zionism, not people who have a little bit of Judaism in their background, but something, a group quite foreign. very problematic for Israelis in terms of body language. You know, Israelis use a lot of hands, their bodies sort of creep into everyone's face in a kind of friendly way. Um, but um, the Russian body was, was, was like this. And how, does, how can one see the stereotype? Many r- amazingly, thinking it's a kind of a joke, when they were speaking to someone of Russian origin, they would speak as if they've got a Russian accent, which is, is very pronounced. It wasn't a nice thing, and kids did it a lot, by the way. You know, listening to kids in the street or somewhere else, even our kids, they would kind of had this Russian way of talking that was really not very nice and, and, and quite damaging uh, to the Russian population. So the Russians felt alienated. The sense of alienation. And they had a sense that those were in Israel, that things were better in America. Because it seemed to be that was the case. Whether it's always true or not, one doesn't know. But there was this feeling we were pushed to come to Israel. We really should have gone to America. But the alienation becomes very, very strong. And by the way, they then took control of their alienation. They really did. They said, you don't want us in your social environment, we will build our own social environment, which they did, and very successfully. So the alienation is a a problem. Then comes employment. That was a big one. The Israeli economy is tiny compared with, wow, Eastern European economies. And job definition in Eastern Europe is very different from Israeli job definitions. And many people, immigrants coming to Israel with their particular career backgrounds, have found that Israel doesn't understand their background. The famous case study was railway engineers. But there are many others. I'll just give the case study of railway engineers because the study was done on this. What happened with railway engineers the railway engineers' program, study program in, in, uh, in Russia or the Russian-speaking countries, was very narrow. If you were a steam engine railway engineer, that's what you knew. Now, in Israel, because it's a small country, engineers, for example, have to know a number of realms. Uh, now, with trains, you have this kind of train and electric trains, but the training was very narrow in Russia. So, someone would come as a steam engineer, locomotion engineer and we don't have any steam engines in Israel. And they can't adapt because they haven't studied it. So you talk about the situation that happened again and again and again in different realms where your background and you think you're coming to Israel and I'm a very important steam engineer, steam locomotive engineer. And then I come here and I really haven't got work. And it gets to some very tragic levels. (laughs) Tel Aviv University, there was a man who was in charge of the photocopying machine on the ground floor. Russian speaker. And as I intend to do, when I had to go down in those days, only one photocopy machine in the whole building, chat with him. And he's an amazing guy. I found out later from the history department that he was an expert on Lenin. That's what he knew. An expert on Lenin in former Soviet Union, that's a good job. You're gonna get a job at any good university there. You go to Moscow University, you see the buildings, you see the structure there. These are serious places. So I'm asking what he's doing photocopying, and he tells me the following. At that time, the Jewish agency gave um, educated immigrants, two years' salary, a lowish salary, but, but a salary. He came and he wanted to be employed by the History Department of the Tel Aviv University, and in the discussion, so the History Department people told me, they said, well, what can you teach? And he said, Lenin. Now, how many Israeli students want a year doing a course on Lenin? So they said to him, look, Lenin, inadequate. But we've got an idea. Do Marx, Lenin, Trotsky, Trotsky and Stalin for Niet, the most popular word in Russian. Niet. He says, I can only do Lenin. And they apparently tried to persuade him, but they wanted this guy to get into the structure. And apparently this guy every time they offered something he said niet. And they said do sort of an overview on Russian history. What did he say? Niet. He ended up in the photocopy room. This was a reality. Russian speaking doctors had a hard time. The Israeli medical authorities unless you came from a particular, you know, like somewhere in Moscow or something like that, or St. Petersburg, um, a top uh, medical uh, uh, department, they were very, very suspicious of the, of the uh, Russian-speaking doctors, and so it carried on in, in realm after realm. Um, what's their political view? By and large, that all generalizations have problems. By and large, hardline right-wingers. How do they feel about the Arabs? Very, very critical. Very critical. Not because they were in Israel, but if you know about ethnic ideas in in, in Eastern Europe, very, very harsh ethnic ideas of the other, and that started coming up. Yeah, we know it politically. Because, um, as was, you'll find on the little handout that I gave you, uh, Zev Khanin, I know him personally, he did a very interesting survey to see how Russian voters were voting. And they were voting for the hardline uh, right-wing party, Yisrael Beiteinu. So this is where they were. They were being caught somehow or other in how the society looked at them and who they were. Um, school, education. They looked at Israeli schools and said, this is a play world. Those kids in Eastern Europe study hard. It's really, I've been in some of the schools. They're good schools, by the way. Good schools, and they have a lot of extra staff. They have social workers and and psychologists and all those people. Um, And they looked at Israeli schools as, as a joke. And so some of them then sent their kids to afternoon schools where particularly, by the way, they would study mathematics. For for Eastern Europeans, mathematics is what it's all about. So much so that the mathematics department of the Hebrew University, the students, the the Russian-speaking students were by far the best, much better than the Israeli students. Hard workers and very committed. So they were disillusioned with the Israeli school system and a lot of other people are uh, until today. And then we come essentially to the uh, religious issue. That was the toughest of all. I cannot tell you how much literature we have from Russian-speaking people in terms of the thing which is the absolute maximum level of, of humiliation for them. With all that I've been saying, as we go into the second generation, They became part of society, they developed a comfortable cultural world. Many of them, um, almost half of a survey of some years ago, almost half of Russian-speaking students are going into graduate school, higher percentage than the average Israeli. So as years go by, as we move into the last 10, 15 years, many of the images that I've been speaking about before were not really felt by the second and third generations until it came to the interaction with the rabbinate. And that would tip the, the whole scale, totally. They couldn't cope with it. Because it got into a absolutely ludicrous situation. Whereas as I mentioned, my wife and I, we found our rabbi somewhere around the world and everything was okay. But the rabbinate was asking them for evidence that they were Jewish. Now, for those of you who've ever looked at cemeteries of Eastern Europe, you know what it's like. Poland, you people, for those of you there, Poland and many of the cemeteries of Eastern Europe are horrendous. You go and try and find your grandmother's name in some cemetery, and you know where you find, might find the stone? Not in the cemetery but in a village house where they're building the house and you can see gravestones in some of the houses there. You go to Krakow and uh, behind the old shul there, you find the wall where that's where the gravestones were. They picked them up from other areas and put them sort of a little bit on, on, on the side of the wall there. How do you get evidence? How do you show? The boys obviously did not, were not circumcised. You want to circumcise your your little boy, your infant male? Of course not. That's the last thing you want to do. So here was this conflict. Both sides have their own narrative. The relevant narrative is, with all of its complications and all of its pain, that the state of Israel is designed for the Jewish people. With all of its complications, more than all of us are aware of this this, this issue and how how problematic it is. And, and the rabbinate serving the wishes of the Israeli government, but they do it in a nasty way. That's the problem. They don't understand that they are touching uh, an immigrant group, which is so feels so vulnerable on this issue, because it's a catch twenty two. You're demanded by the authorities, it's on many immigrant groups, to many countries, you're demanded by the authorities to provide evidence for which you cannot give. There is absolutely no way, even by the various concepts of the law of return. So this is where we are today. Much better than the 1990s, in the 30 years, 25 years, 20 years, since the mass immigration, the picture we see today of Russian speakers is a totally different story. The second generation is successful. Unlike their parents who find it so difficult, who stayed so much within the Russian speaking environment, the second generation are amazing. They've worked it out. They've developed a lifestyle. Although the figures still show that their incomes are lower than Israeli-born workers, that's, that's pretty global, it's gonna happen. It takes time before you get into the income level of, of local populations, it can take a generation or two. But they're doing well, they're enjoying life, they're culturally active, they're serving in the army in very significant numbers. They really have developed Israeli society. It's been an amazing immigration in terms of developing the economy. But you get them on the side and you go through the discussion like I had with the woman from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv and you say, have you got a job? Yes. Have you got this? Yes. Have you got this? Yes. What's wrong? No longer the circus. Because now if they want the Moscow Circus, they get on a plane and fly there. Friend of ours, Russian-speaking woman. She and her husband go to Moscow two or three times a year for a cultural week. They go and get culture. You know, like some people in Israel go to maybe London Theater for a week. They go home. They get there. They've worked it out. They've worked it out. They've got it worked out. Amazing. But when you speak to them and you say, what really hurts you? The religious issue is what we still haven't worked out. And I conclude with a comment by the um, the, the, the Sephardi chief rabbi um, just a few weeks ago. He said the following. This is Chief Rabbi Yitzhak Yosef, a Sephardi Chief Rabbi. Hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of non-Jews in Israel under the law of return are these people. There are many, many non-Jews here. Some of them are communists. Enemies of religion, haters of religion, brought to Israel to be the counterweight to the ultra-Orthodox, and that isn't nice. Thank you very much. Questions? Questions? Yeah, Mike, I'll give you the mic and the mic. I know it's hard to generalize, but if you ask the Russian-speaking immigrants that are even maybe second generations now, do they even consider themselves Jewish? Now, you know, for Israelis, there might be many, many secular ones that don't even believe in God, but they consider themselves Jewish. When we're talking about the the immigrants from Russia-speaking immigrants, what do most of them, or at least a large percentage of them, consider themselves? You see, they want to call themselves Jewish because it's part of the language of the country. And the problem is, if, if some of you aren't, so I think, I think the answer to it is probably a very varied answer. You know, we're talking about such a large population. Some of the recent su- surveys don't give us definitive article, uh, answers on the exact question that you've, you've asked. Because I think it depends where they're living and, and what their environment is. So th- I think definition has become uh, more complex from what I can understand from the surveys. But the, um, the problem is maybe even more symbols. Something like this. This I was reading about a little while ago. The say the guy's Jewish. He wants to call himself Jewish. His wife is a observing Russian Orthodox woman. She's got a cross. And symbols in Israel are very important. There is a generation of Israelis for whom the cross is a threat. Now I understand there's some sort of visitors coming and going to the church of the Holy Sepulchre. There's no problem on that. The problem is that the people who then possibly might even, in some unusual situation, go into the synagogue. They're not going to be too many. And then maybe there's a woman going with the cross. She's she's Christian and she's married to a Jewish guy. I think that's where this complexity of definition comes up all the time. So I would say, in answer, you know, some have called them gone to Israelis. Some want to say they're Jewish. Some don't know how to answer the question. So I'm trying to imagine what would be their reality. It's that combination. Yeah, please. My question was similar. Are they practicing Jews? They... Are they practicing Jews? Mm. Some of them were kipot, small number. There are a few Haredim who are of that group. Practicing, not really, as, as we would understand it. Um, the synagogue they don't go to, they don't go to. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's hard. They, they, they believe in cultural Judaism in many senses, you know. It's kind of um, independence day is, is kind of a, a Jewish thing for them. The, the the synagogue, which is so central in, in American society, um, it doesn't mean anything to them. You, there, there's something also which they hold deeply inside them. They remember the clergy of the Russian Orthodox Church as being pretty anti-Semitic. So religion has this very awkward kind of situation. Now, the whole issue, it goes back to Mike's question as well, of, of, of being Jewish is, is it a religious definition? Is it a cultural definition? So if if one can, if they can feel it as a cultural definition, Simchat Torah can be fun. You know, they will take their kids in the street and they're running around parts of Israel with the Sefer Torah. They can deal with it. Their mind says this isn't religion. Their mind says this is kind of a collective activity. So this is where there's this, this hard jump for people who've come from their background, moving into something which was unaccepted by the Communist Party. And when uh, there were certain numbers of Russian Orthodox clergy who they came into contact, we see it in Ukraine maybe more than in Russia, um, they, they would feel very uncomfortable with it. So I think that, that is really what's happened. Um, and, and it's hard for them, you know, it's hard for them. And maybe it's hard for Israeli society, by the way, Maybe both sides find it hard because it's an, an unusual situation. Something like the Yemenites, or less of the Yemenites, the, the Ethiopians certainly, which also happened. Yeah, Roz? Do you see differences in the second and third generation or you're still referring to the original immigrants? And then our affiliation here in the United States as Jews supposedly is about 25%. So maybe that, please correct me, but that might tell you about how we American Jews deal with... Sure, good, thank you, thank you. Um, Particularly the um, question of, um, just excuse me, sorry. Second and third generation. Older generation, very insular. The, the, The people who came as immigrants, even if they came sort of in their late teens or something, It seems to me that what happens with second and third generation are two nation-building phenomena of Israeli society which helps. One is the school. The school system is very national. And the other is army. So they're going to regular schools, which has its subtle indoctrination to be a Zionist. And we know what the army does to people. So it certainly happens. And we find with the third generation, they're totally, what the strange word, Israeli. They're totally there. Um, sometimes, apparently, they still feel awkward about their parents and grandparents. As we know, in America, where someone, grandparents maybe spoke Yiddish and the kids didn't want their friends to know it, or something like that. So that sort of happens. But yes, generation change has been very, very significant. And so the 1990s, and maybe up to about 15 or 20 years ago, was one epoch, and now where we are is a much better situation. But the pain is deep. Pain isn't forgotten, pain is transferred from generation to generation, that kind of memory. So, you know, that's where it is, They part of it, but somewhere in the back of the mind, a high level of anger. And Ari, last question, or how are we doing? Okay, fine. In view of your answer, that it could be that the Russian group and the Israeli group against each other, as that in any way reflects itself in the Lieberman uh, and the rest of the parties in the current election, elect, electoral situation in Israel? So question was, that, yeah. Has that influenced the election results? Right. Yeah, yeah, certainly, certainly. These, the, the swing in Israel Politically, to the right, comes from a number of issues, you know, local issues, uh, regional issues, fear of, of outside, desire to be strong, feeling that you can't give back territories, all that is internal. But the other is certainly exactly as you're saying, the, many of the immigrants who've come to Israel in the last 20 or maybe even 30 years come... F- to Israel and take on right-wing political views. Definitely true among Russian speakers. Dovchanin gives us figures uh, on the little handout which shows that very, very clearly. Uh, French-speaking immigrants come and find themselves on the Israeli right because what happened to them in France was the conflict with the Muslim population and coming to Israel, when you're then the majority and no longer the minority, the anger perpetuates itself, and by the way, a very significant number of Americans. That's what Israelis find very hard to understand. They say, you come from this open society with the Constitution and all these great things, what are you supporting the hardline right-wing parties, that some of the most active people in the settler movement, in the territories, proportionate to the number of English speakers, is, is quite high so that's really what's happened in israeli society so there is a belief i'm not sure it's 100 percent correct but i think it's got validity that israeli society per se has pretty much remained where it is politically but the tipping point you just need such a small number of people of a defined different perspective that changes the political reality and that's really made israel One of the reasons, not all, one of the reasons has made Israel kind of more right-wing and very much influenced by the Russian-speaking group, which was so large. Now, interestingly enough, we're finding, going back to Roz's question, second and third generation Russian speakers seem to be moving more to the center. They say something like 15% of second or third generation see themselves as centrist politically in Israeli society. So, you know, does the swing back to the center come could well be. Okay, thank you very much. Sorry, sorry, okay, sorry.
0: I always reserve the right to ask some questions, so I have three quick questions. Um, Israel, Israel, taking, Israel taking a million, I mean, I have to emphasize this, Israel taking a million immigrants into a country, I don't even what, I have to figure out, what, what would be like America, take, America taking how many people, Howard? We're like, it's, a, it's a 20%, 30 million? Well, if we have 350 Americans, 350 million Americans, and we'd be taking uh, 20% of the population, 60 million. Yeah, it'd be like America absorbing 70 million uh, immigrants. So it's, it's crazy. So here's my question. Why? You said it was the, the Russians were directed to Israel. So why were they directed to Israel? And was this a political decision? Because they knew if the Russians came, they would be more right-wing and the government wanted to have these voters? Or was there a different reason? That's my first
1: question. I think it was, you know, Israel's always in the 1990s, very much um, wanted to bring in immigrants. You know, nowadays there's a question. But that's a crazy decision. Yeah, but you you don't know where they are politically at that stage. I don't think it was for political reasons. You know, it was known, by the way, if you talk about which is a good immigrant group, you take people from from the cities and you know who they are and you say, wow, this is the crowd we want. So I think it was more that than anything else, rather than, I don't think anyone was aware then of the long-term political results. I don't think on the political level. I think it was, you know, it was they they wanted them in, they wanted more, they wanted, they were seen as potentially skilled immigrants, and I think that's what Israel wanted at the time.
0: My second question is when we go to Israel, and most of you have been to Israel, it's very obvious you can see the immigrant groups that we've been talking about. Um, You're walking around Jerusalem, you can see Ethiopians and Yemenites, um, and it's obvious what groups they come from, even the younger generation, just, but I have to say, I, have been to Israel seven or eight times in Israel, I have not seen many Russians, I and mean, I can't tell them apart, first of all, probably because the young people don't speak like Russians, so, it's a very interesting group, but where do they hang out? Because they must, so where are they, I mean, I understand, they do have their own insular communities. Where are they in Israel? <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: yeah, I'm not kidding. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, those are the visitors more, but they, they do travel. But they're not meeting the Uri Katz groups. <laughs> they, they are in, this, in their very small, narrow yeah, environment. They, they're in, they like being in the big cities. By the way, when they were sent to the development towns, it was a disaster. Sure. They absolutely collapsed. They said, we can't stay. But they stay, they in cities. Basically, you'll find them in the greater Tel Aviv area. Uh, and Or sometimes they're like being changed. Russian There's, exact or Russian, even not neighborhood, Russian meeting places. That's what you'd find. Uh, in in Beresheva recently became filled with Russians, and as soon as there's a large group of them, wherever they are, even if not physically, they have their ways of getting together. Uh, Netanya, near where we live, it's quite interesting. Some people say, if you have to ask a question in Netanya, know either French or Russian. Hebrews of no value. So, <laughs> so that's why it is, you know, these kind of groups really do. By the way, with the second generation, you, you can't tell today. You, you, you know, at the beginning, you could really hear the accent, but not so much. I suppose you've got another question. It's so the
0: last question. So in this, seri- this in this series, we focused on uh, different groups in Israel, um, and we could have chosen others, right? I think you gave me choices. These what about, just out of interest, what is the percentage of Anglos in America? That, I mean, you're part of this group. So... What is the percentage in Israel today? That's just my, just out of interest.
1: I think it's well under 5 or 6%. We're very small, very small. I mean, where have we come from? A few from Southern Africa, a few from Australia, small numbers from America. When, you know, when you really think, English, England, by the way, has a higher percentage than most groups. So, without knowing the exact figure, it's really a very, very low figure, but a more dominant group than their percentage would say, because of the kind of arenas where we find ourselves. Um, not politics. Anglo Saxons can't go into, or don't want to go into Israeli politics because they want to live until a long, <laughs> you know, well advanced age, and you don't with Israeli politics. So it's it's very interesting. There are very, very few native English speakers in the parliament. Very few. But they go into other, all the other realms that they go in, those realms, you know, they, they're quite well known. Thank you very much for coming to the series. Thank you.
0: Tomorrow night, we're back here for the final in our, in our four-part series on what? Oh, on, on prime ministers. We'll do Isaac Rabin, and then our closing program Thursday night here. Thanks.